If you have your Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to keep going through uh, what many consider to be the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the Bible. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on page 944 in that pew Bible that's on the end of each pew, and you're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have one. We are getting to the middle of this chapter, to a transition point, and we'll be looking at the second half of verse 17 into verse 18. Well, let me just read for us starting at verse 16. Here's what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. A very common thing for Christians to wonder when they start suffering is, if I suffer, does that mean that God has forsaken me? Now, I think most Christians know that that's not the case. They know theologically that that's not the case. If you don't know theologically that that's not the case, then I'm going to try to solve that problem for you today. And yet we feel that. We, we feel when these times of extreme difficulty come up, how could it be that a God who loves me, who's gracious to me, how could he let me go through these things? Has something fallen through in God? Or has something fallen through in me that has caused God to bring this pain and this suffering and this difficulty upon me? And in fact, you, you see that kind of feeling expressed all over the book of Psalms, where there are those who are believers, who are faithful, who are even acting as prophets, even writing scripture of the Psalms who are expressing those feelings, not accusing God of wrongdoing, not angry at God, but just pouring out their hearts saying, I don't understand what I'm going through. It feels like I'm forsaken from God in those times of suffering. But it's important for us to know, and these verses teach us, that it's part of God's design for all of his saints to walk through suffering. It says it pretty plainly in these verses, and it's going to say it plainly for the rest of the chapter. If you, are, if you have your Bible out in front of you, I hope you do, you, you can look back and kind of see where we've, we've come from, in particular in chapter 8. All the way from chapter 5 through chapter 8 is, is a section of Romans that's about our assurance of salvation. And in particular, chapter 8 started out in the first half that was talking about having assurance of salvation even though we are still in the struggle with sin. Struggle with sin that he described at the end of chapter 7 as being something where we even end up crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We have that great news. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he goes on and he talks about that. And he talks in the first half of Romans 8 about how as believers, God is not against us for our sin. God is for us against our sin. That's what the first half is about, is that we can have assurance that even as we are in the midst of this spiritual battle, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And as we transition here in the middle of verse 17 and into verse 18, we're going to see for the entire rest of the chapter that God is with us, not just in the battle against sin, but God is with us in suffering. So two things that very commonly shake the assurance of salvation in a believer's life are sin and suffering. We've dealt largely with the issue of sin in the first half, and now we're going to go on in the second half and deal with the issue of suffering. Now today's, today's sermon, I'm tempted to just, to just go through every verse that I can find in the entire Bible about suffering as Christians and, and to just read them all to you. But I, I just want to say, it's, we're going to be talking about suffering as Christians all the way from now through verse 39, which at my pace, that could take us like 10 years. So who knows? Right? I told somebody the other day, every once in a while I run into another preacher, and they're like, are you still preaching Romans? And they laugh at me. And I'm like, yeah, I, t- I told everybody on the first sermon, this, for me this is like getting in a hot tub. Don't ask me when we're going to get out. This is great. This is great. But as we go through the end of, of, of uh, chapter 8, uh, there's going to be an awful lot here about God still being with us, God still being for us, even as we suffer, so that we know that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we have that question, if I suffer, does that mean God has forsaken me? I'll just tell you the answer up front. No. It does not mean that. In fact, it is absolutely normal, and not just normal, but prescribed. It is part of the Christian life as we take up our cross and follow the suffering Savior. So we see, first of all, verse 17, where it said, I'll read the whole verse. It said, if we are children, that means God's children, we've been adopted into his family. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us that's crying out, Abba, Father, to our Father, God. If we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This gets at the idea, we are together with Christ. When your faith is in Jesus, you are put together, you are united with Christ. Your salvation comes by way of being united to Christ, covered in Christ, clothed in Christ. The reason you're going to have glory is because Christ has glory and you're united to Jesus. The reason you're a child of God is because Jesus is the Son of God and you're united to Christ. All of this together, but he says, remember, this one that we are united to is a suffering Savior. So we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This, this idea of suffering followed by glory is something that you're going to see all through Scripture. When you start to think about it, when you start to realize that Jesus pointed this out to his disciples as the way to read the Bible and to see what is the pattern that was pointing to Jesus all the way from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament and then now it was played out in Jesus and now is is. is you know, played out even in us as we are walking through these things, you're, you're going to see it everywhere. But I just want to show you that this has been something that God has built into the Scripture from the very beginning. And, and the Old Testament has this pattern of suffering followed by glory, suffering on the way to glory. First Peter explains this. 
First Peter, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he's talking about the, the prophets that God used to write the Old Testament. And he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What he's saying right there is, as you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see this pattern of suffering and glory, both in the actual predictions about Jesus that are really direct, like Isaiah 53. It's pretty clear in Isaiah 53. Uh, Like I say, I can't read every scripture we think of about this right now, but it's very clear there, just directly predicting Jesus, but it's also the pattern throughout the whole thing is that God's servants, God's prophets, would suffer and then enter into glory. In Luke 11, Jesus said it this way as he was talking to the Pharisees, as he was giving his woes upon the Pharisees. He says, The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. As he says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, what he's getting at there is that from beginning to end of the Bible, from beginning to the end of the Bible as it was put together at that point, which was the Old Testament, that this is the pattern. That God's prophets are not accepted. Not, not seen as those who, wow, this is a man of God. Let's all you know, put him on a throne and, and, and put, a, a, put a royal robe on him. No, God's prophets have been those who have walked a path of suffering and rejection. When he says from Abel to Zechariah the prophet, you know, Abel was killed in Genesis chapter 4, right there at the beginning of the Bible. Zechariah the prophet, most people when they hear that, I should say most Christians, most people who have a familiarity with the Bible, uh, the, the first place your mind goes when you hear Zechariah the prophet is the guy who wrote the book of Zechariah. That's actually talking about a different Zechariah though. It's talking about the Zechariah the prophet in Second Chronicles chapter 24 who was killed uh, in the temple court as he proclaimed that they ought not to be setting up idols and defiling it. And what you have there is the beginning and the end. You may not realize this. This is a fun fact, something that will help you understand your Bible a little bit better sometimes, is that in Jesus' day, the Old Testament had exactly the same 39 books in it that we have today. We use the same Old Testament that Jesus used. He was not using the Catholic Old Testament. He was using the one that we use. And the beginning was Genesis, and the way that the books were arranged, the order that they were arranged in, the last one was Second Chronicles. All the same books, but arranged differently. So when Jesus says, from, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah the prophet, he's saying, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, this is the pattern the whole way through. That those who come and are faithfully proclaiming the word of God have been suffering and rejected. And why should we expect that it would be any different when the Son of God himself comes as the ultimate prophet, the prophet like Moses who'd be raised up? Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, preaches one of the greatest sermons that was ever preached right before he's stoned to death for preaching Christ. 
and he preaches that pattern. That's what his sermon is about. As he's preaching to these Jewish leaders, the very, I mean, literally the same people who were the ones who condemned Jesus to death, he says, don't you realize that what you have done is exactly according to the pattern that was all the way through the Scriptures? He points out that Abraham, Abraham was a man of sorrows, that, that he was promised this inheritance, but he never saw the inheritance in his day. He, he points out that Moses was a man who was rejected by his own people, who, who had those as he started to, to be raised up by God to deliver the people that he had, his own people turn to him and say, who made you a ruler and a judge? And they refused to obey him and they wanted to overthrow him even after he led them through the Red Sea. And he says, this Moses who said to the Israelites, this is the same Moses who said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So that's what the Bible says. When when we say a prophet like Moses, this is a prophet who suffers, a prophet who is a man of sorrows, who is rejected. And and he caps off that sermon. Stephen caps it off in Acts 7.52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So this pattern of suffering is all the way through the Old Testament, but good news, it's a pattern of suffering and then entering into glory. That that they were looking to the reward, to the heavenly city, even as all of these things happen. Then our Savior came, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He came from heaven. God the Son, the Son of God, He, he came and he, he became incarnate. He took on flesh. The one who is eternally God took on a human nature to Himself. And He came and suffered. And I'm not just talking about the cross. Obviously, He suffered at the cross, but He came and He humbled Himself. Imagine the things that He was going through that He would not have had to go through had he just stayed on the throne of heaven. And yet he came and he was born in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, as the Baptist Catechism says. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one of whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus walked a road of suffering. And he walked that road of suffering all the way to the cross. When he got to the cross, it says, uh, he, he said to them, uh, it, well, this is a- actually after he rose from the dead, but he said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead. You see, he's saying, this has been the pattern all along, and it was showing exactly what I would do. That I would walk a path of suffering all the way to the point of rejection and death, but then rise in glory. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus came, and he was humbled, and he suffered. And the fact that he suffered is our hope. Because Jesus didn't just suffer for nothing. He didn't just come and say, I'm I'm going through a hard time just because I want to show that I feel your pain. Even though that's kind of part of it. Jesus suffered 
in my place. I, I don't know if you have ever wrapped your mind around how much your sin personally deserves God's punishment. When we wrap our minds around that, then, then whatever we might walk through in this life kind of pales in comparison to what it is that our sin deserves. Kind of reminds us that we might be a little bit prideful when we think that God ought not to give us any sort of suffering. But Jesus is the one who took the fullness, the full punishment, the full wrath of the Father upon himself in our place for our sins so that we could be counted as righteous in him. That's what you need. If, if, you're, if, if you have a different understanding of how it is that you can be right with God or how it is that you can go to heaven one day, then I invite you to, to lay that aside right now. Change your mind about that. That's called repentance. That's part of repentance. Change your mind about that and instead look to Jesus, trust in Jesus alone and, and his finished work at the cross to die in your place for your sins Trust in Him alone for your salvation, and He will give you eternal life as you turn to Him and trust in Him. And those of us who trust in Him, we have to realize that we're going to follow Him. And part of following Him means that we're going to follow Him in suffering. It does not mean we're going to die for somebody's sins. That's something that's reserved for the Son of God. But it does mean if we're walking after Jesus, then we ought not to think that it's strange that we would suffer when we're following a Savior who is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. This was right after Peter had made that great profession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and then it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you hear that? Peter was thinking, I just said you're the Christ and you agreed with me. And now you're saying you're going to suffer and be rejected and killed. That's crazy talk, Jesus. Well, what did Jesus say? Well, uh, well, Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, when, when, Jesus, or when Peter said to Jesus, no, you, you shouldn't suffer like that. You're the Christ. You're going to lead a victorious life. That was Peter's way of thinking right there. Jesus says, you're setting your mind on the things of man. The way it's been put in the first half of Romans 8 was the mind set on the flesh, right? Don't set your mind on the flesh. Don't love the things of the world, right? He says, no, don't you see there's suffering before the glory that is so much greater than the suffering. And then Jesus, the next thing he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that's the thing that gets right at where we are today in Romans eight seventeen. If we are heirs and fellow heirs with Christ, we will suffer with him, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him.
Jesus said, here's what it looks like to follow our crucified Savior is you take up your cross and you walk after him. Suffering is God's appointed path that we must walk through. Luke 24:31. Sometimes um, people talk about the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. You may not realize that he actually said more things on the cross than those that are called his seven sayings. One of the things that he said on the cross is in Luke 24, as he turned to, uh, to those who were around and he wept for the daughters of Jerusalem and warned them about the suffering that was going to come for those who were following after him. And he said to those who were standing around there, trusting in him as he hung on the cross, he said, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? By that, he means if they do these things to the Son of God, what are they going to do to you who follow who are sinners? It's expected that if we follow this suffering Savior that we're going to suffer. It's expected that we would suffer in all kinds of ways. It says in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, by the way, that says right there, if you believe, that's a gift of God. Calvinism right there. But it says you should not only believe, but has also been granted to you to suffer for his sake. God has granted it to you to suffer for his sake. That sounds strange, doesn't it? But it just reminds me of those, those disciples who had borne witness to Jesus after he had been raised from the dead and they got called in front of the council and they were beaten for their testimony in Jesus and it says that they went away rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for his name. And he says, you, believer, it's been granted to you not only to believe but to suffer for his sake. In Acts 14, 22, Paul and his, uh, his companions were going around. They were, it says that they were strengthening the churches that they had planted, and they were encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He says here's part of the encouragement. Here's a, here's a reason to read the book of Revelation devotionally. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He means that as an encouragement. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? That verse says you will be persecuted. It might take more extreme forms in some people's lives and in some countries than it will in others, but there will be suffering in following after Christ. Now, I've heard people say this is one of the most common things that you'll hear if you make it a regular habit in your life to tell people the gospel, if you're, if you're trying to win people to faith in Jesus, one of the most common lines of rejection that people will say, especially in an affluent area like ours, people will say, well, my life's already going pretty well. I don't think I need that. As though the point of coming after Jesus were for your life to go well. Now, I, I don't want to say, like... Don't, don't, don't get me mixed up. I want your life to go well, okay? I really do. But that's not the way that Jesus sold himself to people. He wasn't like, come after me and all of your suffering will stop. Come after me. Whoever would come after me, will let him have all his dreams come true. 
No, he said, whoever would come after me must take up his cross daily. He's saying, you come and you die. It is a call to, the call to come to Jesus is a call to come and die so that you might live. It's a call to say, I will die to myself. I will die to my sin. I will die to my flesh. I will die to the world so that I will come after the living Savior. By faith, he's going to give me life as I do not love the things of this world, as I don't set my hope on this age, but on the age to come. Now, so that's, that's where we are, where he says, if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, provided we suffer with him. I just want you to, to see that. I've been going to a lot of other scriptures, but think about the words that are there in the second half of verse 17. He's saying, this is evidence of being a child of God, suffering together with Christ. In fact, the way that he puts it, the, 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 just the grammar of the words means that if you do not suffer with Christ, you are not a child of God. And if you are a child of God, you will suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, that takes us to the good part, all right? That as we go through these sufferings that we have put in front of us, not some sort of a sick enjoyment of suffering, that's not the point here. What we have here is that we have an enjoyment of God as we have a pure and certain hope in Jesus for what he has provided for us in his death and resurrection. As we suffer with him, we will be glorified together with him too. We have present sufferings that are going to be followed by future glory. Now, are the sufferings of this present age, are they little? Are the things that happen now, the sufferings of this present time, he says they're not worth comparing, verse 18, to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Well, does that mean uh, just, just ignore it? Just think to yourself, it's not really that big a deal. Does, does this mean that somebody who really is weeping in the middle of their suffering is just a weak Christian, that they ought to be looked down on, that you ought never cry at a funeral? Absolutely not. Jesus wept. It's a great verse. Jesus, as he went through the sufferings of this life, he recognized these are heavy. These are bad. These are painful. These are worth weeping over. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us to look at those who weep and despise them as having weak faith. It says weep with those who weep. So we don't minimize the sufferings of this life. In fact, you think about the sufferings of this life, they are really, really big. Think about all the categories that there are. One that's very obvious just from what we've already talked about in Scripture is persecution. All who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which of the prophets did they not persecute? Right? They killed the Lord of glory. And if they would do these things when the wood is green, well, then why not when the wood is dry? Stephen was stoned to death. You see this over and over. All but one of the, the apostles were executed for their faith. And the one who wasn't executed, John, he suffered greatly. Wrote the book of Revelation while he was an outcast on the island of Patmos out there by himself in exile. 
There's all kinds of suffering. It keeps on going. Some of you may in your house somewhere have a, a copy of an old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It just goes through and talks about all of the different ways that people have been persecuted and martyred, at least up to that point through the centuries. And there's been even more persecution and martyrdom that has come in the last century than in all of the centuries before that combined. Now, we, we may think that our sufferings here in the name of Christ are great because, because you might not get to have the job that you want if somebody finds out that you uphold the morality of the Bible or something like that. That is a form of persecution. And we also need to think about those who are in places like North Korea where possession of a fragment of the Bible carries with it the death penalty. Not an exaggeration. Places like Afghanistan, where anyone who converts to Christianity will be executed if they are caught. Places around the world where people lose everything in this world for following Christ. Kind of, kind of makes having a hard time at work because people know you're a Christian. Makes it sound a little smaller, but it's real too. But there is persecution. There are those who would oppose God's people simply because they are God's people and because they're upholding what God's Word says. But there's other categories of of suffering too. This is not a passage that's just about persecution. This also has to do with sickness. And when we say sickness, the word sickness can sound like, oh, you get a cold, that's bad. Well, yeah, that's, that's bad, but what about when you get a terminal cancer diagnosis? And you've been healthy all your life and you've done all the right things. And you don't understand why has this happened. What, what about pain? When suddenly your body just hurts all over and the doctors have no idea what it is and think you're crazy. What, what about bereavement? Where the most special people in the world to you are taken away and you don't understand you don't know why or what the timing was about. There's, there's loss of property where maybe you had all kind, maybe you had a fortune and suddenly it's lost and you've fallen into poverty. There's, there's rejection from friends and from family, not just for Christ, but for various kinds of reasons. There are disasters like hurricanes, like earthquakes, like all kinds of things that you never saw coming. There's crime that can be committed against you. Heinous crime. There is oppression. There are those who would seriously try to take advantage of those who are in weak situations. There is abuse. There is failure. There's terror. There's war. There's poverty. There's imprisonment like Paul went through. There are all kinds of things, and they're not small. They're big. Just think of Job. In the book of Job, think of the kinds of sufferings that he went through. Just in the span of an afternoon, maybe, or even a few minutes, he had all of these messengers, these four different messengers that came to him. One said, as Job was a man with all kinds of wealth in terms of, of livestock, because that's how you were wealthy in Job's day. You had a lot of livestock. 
He said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The next messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The next messenger showed up and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The next messenger said, this is the worst of all. Can't even imagine this. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine losing all of that? Losing your own children, losing everything but your own life. Then Satan asked God if he could afflict Job more, and he struck him with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head in Job chapter 2, to the point where Job's own wife looked at him. And her, her advice to him was, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That's not good advice. But you can see the kind of suffering that he was going through where his own wife would say, Give up on this God. You'd be better off dead. Guys, Job was a man of God. Job was faithful. And, and you need to know that the reason for Job's suffering were hidden from him. And they were hidden from his friends. And the, his friends were absolutely convinced that Job's suffering had something to do with Job that it had to be because of something that he had done or because you cannot claim to, to be pure in your heart because there has to be some kind of hidden sin. This has to be retribution from God in some way. But as we read the book of Job, we get to see what's going on, which is it has absolutely nothing to do with Job and himself and his life. It has to do with God displaying his power and his glory in heaven. This is a thing to know as you go through your sufferings, which you will go through. Some of those sufferings sometimes have to do with God's loving discipline of you. Sometimes sin brings pain into your life that God doesn't bring because of wrath against you, but because he is forming you into the image of Christ and he loves you as a loving father. Sometimes that's the case. But many times, suffering comes into your life for reasons that are absolutely inexplicable. Where your old motivational teacher in high school used to tell you that everything comes down to choices. Make the right choices and everything's okay. And you've made the right choices and everything is not okay. And you say, I don't get this. Why is this happening? You need to know that God's ultimate purposes are not about you. They're not about me. God has purposes that are bigger than us and higher than us. And in Job's life, those purposes had to do with displaying God's own glory in heaven, even to Satan and to the other heavenly beings who were watching Job's life and what would happen in all of this. And that may be the case in your own life. It may have absolutely nothing to do with you except that God has purposes that are beyond what we understand. You, you need to know 
that these, these things that happen may have to do with Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you know that angels and demons are watching you in your life? The angels are rooting for the glory of God to be displayed in you. The demons are rooting for everything that God has said to be false about you. But sometimes there are just things that God has his purposes in that will never be known to you in this life. And we trust God. Again, it doesn't mean that these sufferings, as it says, the, verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I just want to go back again. Does that mean that those sufferings are meaningless? Does it mean they're small? Does it mean they're little? No. The Apostle Paul, who God used to write this book, also, uh, God also used him to write 2 Corinthians, and, and Paul tells us about his own sufferings. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You hear that? That is heavy suffering. That's really heavy stuff. And that same Paul is the one that the Holy Spirit used to write, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know why that is? It's not because the suffering right now is small. It's because the glory that is to be revealed is so, so, so much bigger than that big giant suffering that we have here in this world, in this life. The glory to be revealed it's not worth comparing in size, and it's not worth comparing in duration. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction, remember, he knows it's big and heavy, but he says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see there? When you compare the glory that is to be revealed with the sufferings of this present age, the glory to be revealed is so much weightier, so much bigger, that in comparison it makes what is here lightweight like a feather. When you compare how long it's going to last, you have the momentary afflictions of this life. Now this life, when you're in it, it seems like all there is. It seems like forever, but it's momentary. It's transient. But we're looking at the eternal weight of glory. We are looking at the things that are not transient, but last forever, the eternal glory. 
What he's talking about here is the glory that we will enter into as believers in Jesus Christ. The, the way that the Bible lays this out for us, we see that we, we enter into that glory first in what we call the intermediate state, or what most people call heaven. That intermediate state is the time between when you die and when you're raised from the dead. And what happens at that point is that believers, after their death, go straight to be with Jesus in heaven. And you're made perfect in holiness, and you immediately pass into glory, and you behold Christ, and there is joy, and there is love. It is a world of love alone without any mixture of the hatred that surrounds us in this world. And it's the glory of Christ. Now, if you want to know what heaven is like, you need to study the Bible to see what God is like. Do not trust those heaven and back books that are all over the place. Okay? People want to know things that God has not told us. People make up stories. Sometimes people tell about experiences that maybe they actually experienced, but when you compare them to the Scripture, that's not the heaven that's described in the Scriptures. When Paul says that he was given by God this vision, he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of it, but he was given a view of heaven. It says that he saw things he wasn't permitted to speak about. Whereas these heaven and back books say, we're going to spill all. We're going to tell you everything. And yet when you pick up the book of Revelation and read Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, all of these places in the Bible that describe heaven, do you know what a heaven is all about? Heaven is all about God. It's all about God. Just like Yankee Stadium is all about the Yankees, right? When you go to Yankee Stadium, I mean, if, if the whole reason you're there is to examine the stadium and the whole setup of the thing, well, then you don't care anything about the Yankees, do you? Which I kind of don't, but it's okay if you do. You, you, I should I have been talking about City Field instead, all right? But here's the thing. When we go to heaven... The point of heaven is God. This is the glory of heaven is God. So if you want to know what is the glory to be revealed to us, what is it that we're going to be enjoying in heaven, open up your Bible and with every passage ask the question, what does this tell me about the God whose presence I'm going to be enjoying forever? That's how you learn about heaven is you learn about God because he's the star of heaven. He's the whole point of it. And so in that intermediate state, we're going to behold Christ. We're going to enjoy God, but we're also even there waiting for more of the glory that's to be revealed at the resurrection. There will be a day when Christ has returned from the dead and has broken open the tombs and he raises us from the dead. The dead will be judged. Those who are not in Christ, they, their, their souls and their bodies will be reunited to be brought before the throne of God to be judged for what they have done, and their names will not be found written in the Lamb's book of life, and they will be cast body and soul for all eternity into the lake of fire. Those who have been raised from the dead who are in Christ, 
whose faith is in Jesus, body and soul united, they have been raised in bodies imperishable, like Jesus' resurrected body. And we will stand before the throne of God, and our names will be found in the Lamb's book of life. And we will be told, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we will live body and soul in the renewed earth. Not in in an ethereal place, but in the renewed earth. In the city of New Jerusalem. The new heavens, the new earth, the recreated earth. We will be eating from the tree of life with its 12 fruits and its, its leaves for the healing of the nations. We're going to be there before the throne of God. We're going to be crying out with the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And we are going to be publicly judged righteous in Christ. We're going to be perfectly blessed in soul and in body. No pain, no tears. We're going to be fully enjoying God for all eternity. And now you need to know that glory that is in God, that is hidden with God in Christ, in heaven for us right now, is so much bigger and so eternal that when you compare it to the sufferings of this present life, they are light momentary afflictions that are not even worth comparing. This glory that it talks about, it says this glory is to be revealed. That means it's already there. It's already there. It's going to be revealed. You're going to see it. The disciples, at least three of them, got a little glimpse of that glory at the transfiguration when they saw Jesus shining brighter than the sun. It's going to be revealed. It is, according to 1 Peter 1, it's kept in heaven for you and ready to be revealed in the last time. When Christ, who is your life, Colossians 3, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In 1 John 3, 2, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. I want you to just think about this glory because this is the thing that the Bible calls us to when we walk through suffering is set your mind on Christ and the glory that is to be revealed. It is coming. It's coming. Just as Jesus walked through the sufferings of this life in all of his humiliation and pain and then entered into his glory, risen from the dead, we will have that glory revealed in us. I'll just read you a long chunk of Robert Haldane, what he said about this. The glory here spoken of is that to which the Apostle John refers when he says that we shall see the Lord as he is and that we shall be made like him. If the rays of the sun illuminate the darkness on which they shine, what will be that light which the Son of Righteousness will produce in the children of him who is the Father of lights? If the face of Moses shone when amidst the terrors of the law he talked with God, what shall their condition be who shall behold him? Not on the mountain that might be touched and burned with fire, but in the heaven of heavens. Not amidst thunderings and lightnings, but amidst the expressed testimonies of his favor and blessing. They shall appear in the sanctuary of the Lord and discern plainly the mysteries of the wisdom of God. They shall behold not the ark and the altar, but the things in the heavens which these were made to represent. They shall see as they are seen and know as they are known. 
to the enjoyment of this glory after the persecutions and troubles of this life, the bridegroom is represented as calling his church, Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And there is no proportion between finite and infinite, so no comparison can be made between the things that are seen and temporal and the things that are unseen and eternal, between our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, and that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if there are any who have only the things in this world to hope in, I pray that you call them to Christ. I pray that you give them repentance. I pray that you give them faith. And I pray that you would, by your grace, give them the full inheritance, the fullness of your glory. Lord, I pray for us who are in Christ. I pray for your grace and the help of the Spirit to walk through the path that you've given us of suffering together with Christ on our way to being glorified together with Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are in the middle of suffering. Lord, there are various sufferings of various kinds that we experience in various ways, and we know that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through things that are much, much heavier than some of the rest of us right now. And I just especially pray for your comfort and for your help for them. Give us the grace to weep with those who weep, not to minimize those sufferings. God, I pray that you would give grace and help to walk through those things as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Put our hope in the glory of Christ. Lord, I thank you that Jesus has gone through everything before us and has come out on the other side alive and glorified. Thank you for our union with him. Keep us in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.